This is the 966, episode 28. Richard, what a journey so far. Mabruk. Gets better every day. This week, we are joined by the one and only Khaled Al-Mayina, Saudi journalist, commentator, businessman, and the former editor-in-chief of the Saudi Gazette. Khaled is joining us from Jeddah, I believe. Thank you for joining us, Khaled. Yes, uh, also the Arab News, which was 25 years, so that was my first venture into media. The Arab News was first. Uh, Khaled, truly the one and only. I mean, you you hold a particularly special place in terms of journalists and, and media figures in Saudi Arabia. And I just can't tell you how happy I am you, you've joined us today. Thank you. On today's episode, so much to discuss this week. Gentlemen, we'll be talking about oil and energy markets as the situation in Europe heats up. We'll talk a little bit about the media landscape in Saudi Arabia. And yes, we'll talk about Ukraine and really so much more before we get started. As always, big favor this week, take five seconds and hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. We know many of you have already done so, so we're sorry to mention this each week, but we keep seeing uh, our numbers grow and we're being surprised by the growth of the show, Richard. So uh, it, it appears my harping on this point is working. Anyway, thanks. <laughs> yes. um, Richard, let's get going. What's your one big thing this week? Keep nagging everybody, Lucian. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I will. <laughs> Uh, yes, my one big thing. In our earlier episode 26, my one big thing was Saudi Arabia's, at the time, upcoming founding day. My one big thing this week in episode 28 is the just celebrated Saudi, Saudi founding day on, on the auspicious date, Lucian, of 2-22-2022. Big date. So, yeah. So why founding day again? Uh, well, to begin with, this is a fascinating exercise in nation building. Uh, it is also a significant departure from traditional views on Saudi history. So historical research surrounding the founding day initiative traces Al Saud political and social governance back to the 14th century and even further to the time of the Prophet Muhammad. But of particular interest is that for generations it was commonly accepted among historians and others that the second Saudi state began in 1744 when the head of the Al Saud Imam Muhammad ibn Saud of Duriya allied with the religious reformer Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. In reality, according to research related to Founding Day, Imam Muhammad ibn Saud became ruler of the city-state in 1727 and, close to two decades later, offered sanctuary in Duriya to Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, who himself was drawn to Duriya because of its political stability. Quote, in short, it was not the alliance of the sheikh and the imam that made possible the foundation of the first Saudi state, but rather it was the existence of that state, already politically and economically strong, that made possible the spread of the message of reform. Colin, this is, this is just truly interesting, and this historical perspective not only looks backwards to redefine that Saudi state and the Al Saud relationship with Sheikh Mohammed ibn Abdul Wahab, but also forward. So, in, in, in to, to Summarize, in the words of Saudi writer and researcher Abdullah bin Bijad al-Otebi, quote, The theoretical effort of laying the foundation for Founding Day is crucial to building states, cementing identity, and enlightening society. The Saudi identity is coherent, modernist, and developed. And like identities throughout history and across the globe, it must be reimagined and reestablished constantly, especially during transitional historic periods. Today in Saudi Arabia, this effort takes the form of Vision 2030, unquote. Remarkable stuff. Well, I think, yes, I think the idea is that we were a nation uh, that, of course, was formed officially in 1932, but it goes back, and as you just pointed out, the 
first Saudi state and then the second Saudi state and all. I think that the deep-rooted uh, and embedded historical significance to the Al Saud. Of course, things change, but uh, I think it's important to have a foundation day where people will uh, could go back. Uh, you see, uh, it's important to do that. Uh, there's a difference between just being a state or being a nation state or having an identity. Uh, it was a disparate group, tribal um, affiliations were there. And even though the first, uh, you know, King Abdul Aziz was the first king tried to put in people's mind the idea of a modern state, it took quite a lot of effort. But by going back now, you at least have that feeling that there is a historical significance behind this date. And I hope that people will start pushing in. We have moved from uh, ownership to leadership, uh, as uh, a good friend of mine said. So there is now the semblance of a modern-day state with its modern, um, the, uh, the legal, uh, let me rephrase that, it's a modern state with an executive branch, uh, legal branch, and uh, constitution, and new rules and regulations are coming. And let me be very frank, and I call it spade a spade. In the last three or four years, I have noticed a determination by those in power to see the, that we are at power with other nations, that there are recognizable uh, mind posts, that we know where we are going. And to do that also, we have to look back at what we were. Well, and that's one of the things that we talked about when we first talked about Founding Day several episodes ago. Every country has a founding myth, and and this is not a negative thing. Every country has a narrative, and uh, this this narrative that Founding Day is reinforcing is a different one, uh, and it certainly it looks to 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 be trying to de-emphasize the 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 Wahhabi side, and I know many Saudis don't appreciate that their brand of Islam is characterized as Wahhabi, they feel that's inaccurate. But in any case, de-emphasizing uh, de that aspect of it and emphasizing the long-term traditional political uh, security aspects of Al Saud presence in, uh, in, the, in the peninsula. Uh, so it's, it's fascinating. Is it, does it, in, your, in your mind, uh, Khaled, from what you see and who you speak with, is this does, is it taking? Are people, do people see themselves this way? And they, do they appreciate the, the distinction? Yes, I think they do. Because if you remember, the Crown Prince a couple of years ago did speak about religion. That is, while our ideology is Islam, but we are also a modern state. And we have to come up with laws and regulations. And things are moving. And uh, technology is now the buzzword. So it's the usage of technology, usage of new modern methods. KPIs, good governance are very important. The idea that religion rules Saudi Arabia like in before, I don't think so will hold water. Religion is part and parcel of our existence on, on this earth. We are Muslims. We are not shying away or divesting ourselves from that. But we have to be a modern state. And this is what the Vision 2030 is all about. Richard, I love this one big thing from you this week. It's really cool. I think this happens, too, in, in many other nations. It happens in the United States where we sort of revisit a period of history and historians look at what's happening and say, this is really not actually what happened. We need to update our, um, you yeah. know, our perception of this like this. 
what we learned at the time from, you know, conventional wisdom at the time can be updated through history. And I think it's important that Saudi Arabia is doing this. It's also like factually accurate. I mean, that the founding of the Saudi state was on that date, 1727 not later. So it's better to get it right and change history than it is to just stick with what you have been doing all this time, which is, it's really cool to see it. Uh, it I don't think, uh, if I may just say, Please. it's not changing history, it's commemorating history because mm-hmm. the historical process was going on. And, you know, and during these processes, quite a few things change and come and go. But I think it's just sort of implanting in the minds of the people that this is an age-old, you know, landmark rather than something that just came out yesterday. Mm-hmm. And just to, just to add, I think it's important for Westerners, Americans, to understand that this this reformulation, this re-envisioning of of Saudi Arabia's relationship uh, with religion, like you say, uh, Khalid, it, it it doesn't change, you know, how a, a Muslim and a Saudi uh, feels about themselves or about the religion, but it, it's. A significant part of, of King Salman's and, and Mohammed bin Salman's uh, 2030 program to put forward a different type of Islam, uh, the moderate version that they feel, and, and, uh, and Mohammed bin Salman has spoken about this, that, that prevailed uh, pre-79. You know, uh, this is a more moderate Islam that we think is actually uh, uh, more consistent with how Saudi Arabia uh, approaches Islam and how we want to be viewed by the world. We should mention, um, oh, please, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say we should mention um, uh, Khalid's uh, alma mater, uh, Arab News, had a really, really good piece kind of going in point by point on how this all um, was sort of shaked out. So um, just wanted to mention that. You can find it on our website, sustg.com or on Arab News. Just fascinating. Khalid, please, sorry. Yes, what I was saying is that uh, when you spoke, Richard, this is... The real Islam, this is what the crown prince was trying to tell you, that this is the real Islam. It had been hijacked by certain elements, and they portrayed a very extreme point of view. And I always used to say, uh, not to religious people, I would say extremists. So I think we are on the right track, and this is what people want. But there's always that fear that as we westernize, uh, or uh, do we westernize or do we modernize? And I say no. Saudi Arabia is on the path to modernization rather than westernization. We maintain our values, we maintain our beliefs, but at the same time, we are going to be passengers on on the train of progress and life rather than being just mere bystanders and looking at the past. So the, the whole country is looking at the future. You know, Khaled, I've known you for decades, and I've heard you mention that a number of times, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, the, 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 the path... That Saudi Arabia is on has to be authentic and organic, uh, and that distinction between modernizing and westernizing is an important one. And I think most Saudis really feel it because there's so many things about the Western world, Western westernizing that you know many Saudis just you know aren't interested in. Um, so its own particular path, and this is something you've you've mentioned many times. I couldn't agree more. Richard, uh, moving on, my one big thing this week, uh, with oil now headed over $100 a barrel on Brent and possibly even higher as the situation in Ukraine deteriorates, I wanted to look at the oil market a little bit and focus on Saudi Arabia's oil production and the export of Saudi crude globally. 
Russia, of course, is a big player in the oil markets now, really making up the plus in the new market setting o- cartel OPEC plus. That's now interesting as sanctions against Russia start to ratchet up. We'll know more today about e- U.S. and EU sanctions against Russia and how that might affect energy markets and pricing. But what we do know for sure is really three things. Uh, one, that Saudi Arabia does have spare production capacity, which, of course, comes in handy at times like this. Two, that spare production capacity in both oil and natural gas can't possibly make up for what Russia produces, even if the Saudi Arabia wanted to. And three, the U.S. has been in close contact with Saudi Arabia about energy markets in recent days. So when a global event happens like this in Ukraine, which we will talk about in a little bit, um, everyone is reminded again of who the swing oil producer is. Um, of course, gentlemen, we know it's not as simple as Saudi Arabia turning up the spigot a little higher so more oil flows. So Richard, you and I wanted to look a little bit at where Saudi Arabia's oil exports are going now and where they are going, most of it anyway, by far is Asian markets. Asia uh, has typically been the key market for Saudi crude oil in recent years with roughly 80% of the total last year, and that's an increase from 77% in 2020. China, who is standing by Russia after its premeditated war in Ukraine, has been the top destination for Saudi crude since 2019, and it retained that accolade by some distance in 2021. The top four destinations for Saudi crude are China, Japan, South Korea, and India, so all Asian nations. Recent data show that the U.S. was once again in the top five and the only non-Asian importer of Saudi oil but uh, in the top five. But the amount that the U.S. imported from Saudi Arabia decreased last year from 407,000 barrels in 2020 um, to 376 in 2021. This is the lowest in 36 years. Uh, Saudi exports to European markets also dropped in 2021. So while Saudi Arabia does have spare capacity right now, most of its oil is going to Asian markets, and that isn't a quick or easy thing to change. Um, Gentlemen, let me kick it over to you. Just thought all this data was interesting. We were looking at it. Just um, a lot's happening right now. Well, I've always been an advocate of Austropolitik, of the Willy Brandt type. I mean, his Austropolitik was towards Russia. I think we should always look towards markets. And as you said, China, Japan, Korea, India uh, are great markets for us. At the same time, the word swing producer was mentioned. Yes, for years, Saudi Arabia was the swing producer in order to match prices, to help countries, and in fact, even giving uh, free oil to the developing countries. But right now, also, you have to understand that we have a 2030 vision, we have plans, we have to have a revenue. It's not that Saudi Arabia is going to go and uh, exploit the situation, but mm-hmm. I don't think so. We will do anything that will not look primarily at our own interests first. And the East has always been important, even growth in Vietnam and other countries that were not mentioned. Uh, but I think, yes. We will continue our eastward progress as far as oil is concerned. Now, that doesn't mean that there will be some kind of cut in supply to the United States or some deliberate attempt or a 1973 type of scenario. But I think right now, as I said, the interest of Saudi Arabia is of prime importance to itself. And stable markets. I mean, Saudi Arabia is not excited. Saudi Arabia does not want to see this kind of destabilization to markets and, and threats to markets. I mean, uh, you know, they would like to see stable markets. They're happy with the elevated price, but they understand, uh, you know, extended uh, uh, elevated prices for an extended period are not good for Saudi Arabia's interest either. 
it spurs it, it harms it harms other economies and as i said that's the reason we were always we had been uh, you know swing producers in order to balance these things and i agree with you elevator prices is a very nice expression uh, it doesn't help us in the long run right right um, but I, and this is a common theme for us on the 966 we always return to why is it that saudi arabia is a swing producer why is it that among all these, you know, all these oil-producing nations, Saudi Arabia and basically the UAE, are the only ones with the capacity to increase production, and Saudi Arabia is looking to to up its capacity, uh, you know, to 13 million barrels a day by 2027? Why is it? And our response is, it, sorry, go ahead, Colin. It was a global concern, and I tell you that whatever you read about Saudi Arabia, there is a human element to it because. If economies go down, then, of course, this will affect us also regarding imports or exports. So it's in the interest of Saudi Arabia that the world oil market be stable. It's in the interest of Saudi Arabia that the Asian markets, you know, be stable and the economies of Asia grow up and the growth will be there. And that defines also our exports. So if you have stable oil prices, the export of oil will be stable and will increase. Exactly. And uh, and to, to come back to that thought, the, Saudi Arabia, through its investment and manage, management of its uh, oil-producing facilities and capacity, has, has, has made the commitment, financial and otherwise, to have this capacity. It's been responsible stewardship of this natural resource. And uh, it's an important thing to remember because it, it you know, this is a decision taken by the, the country of Saudi Arabia that benefits all of us. True, it does. It's a global benefit. Yeah. And that decision, those decisions were taken oftentimes in the face of you know, protests from other nations saying, don't invest in new oil developments, don't invest in developing um, new wells or anything like that. We're pivoting to renewables. And Saudi Arabia has heard those complaints and said, look, oil is part of the future for a little while now, at least. And now we're seeing it. We have weathered many a storm, as they say, and I think it has been to the credit of Saudi Arabia for looking at things in a more positive view. And I don't say this because I'm a Saudi, but I've been following at a time. I say, why do we over the years, why should we be just swing producers while others can to maintain oil prices, to supply oil to those countries that are short of oil? And then now I think the, the end game is that we are concerned about the world economy. Absolutely. I think, you know, the next the next logical question is Russia. And that's because, uh, you know, that OPEC plus arrangement bringing Russia into the OPEC under the umbrella or at least in a in a uh, coordinating way in 2016 was a huge uh step for managing oil markets and when you had you know the two largest two of the three largest oil producers now in coordination what this is the ukraine situation and and you have unique perspective on russia Khaled, because you were one of you were one of only four journalists who was there in 1990 when saudi arabia reestablished diplomatic relations with russia you've been a yes, close observer of this those were different days. It was, you know, one party rule in Russia. Now, Russia has changed a lot, both on a domestic and international front. And uh, right from the period from Gorbachev and then going 
respond to Putin and all. Uh, right now, I think we think the situation is both fluid and volatile. And it's very difficult for somebody from this part of the world to comprehend. My uh, advice would be just to wait and see. Of course, re regarding oil, the Saudi uh, authorities have to find out and sort of cater to what's going on. But if you talk about what's happening in the Ukraine, if I may uh, have read you rightly, I think we have to just wait and see and also hope that things will not get out of control. Because the way things are going on, uh, and hearing about attacks and counterattacks and also the recognition of the two breakaway republics, this sort of gives many ideas to other people in the European region. For us, uh, a rapprochement would be very helpful. For us, a united Europe would be great. So that'll be a great example to follow the, the, the European common market and the EC. Uh, and we are not at all, uh, you know, as they say, uh, happy with what's going on. There are some Arab commentators that I sometimes read or some tweeters who sort of are, you know, uh, thinking that this is good for Arabs. I say, no, this is not good, not only for Arabs, this is not good for the world because loss of life, attacks, counter-attacks are totally uh, things that nobody would like to see on any front. Agreed. Yes, it's uh, it's really extraordinary what's going on. And, and uh, we look at it from the U.S. perspective, which is in alliance with NATO and our partners in Europe, and how to respond and, and what our commitments are and, and that sort of thing. Saudi Arabia has different factors it needs to consider. But it is interesting from a Saudi perspective to, to see, and Saudi Arabia is increasing, you know, it has the 20 OPEC plus alliance with Saudi Arabia's coordination. There's increasing investment, increasing uh, discussion in terms of, of uh, greater economic coordination uh, and even, you know, across the board, you know, not only from in, in commerce, but also in defense and the like. Does it give one pause when, you know, a country essentially is now invading another? Yes, it makes you think, where is the rule of law and order? A question somebody asked me this morning, is the U.S. now trying to demonstrate its powers post-Afghanistan? So I, I don't know, you know, whether... It is just muscle flexing because you don't go and muscle flex. This is not a neighborhood and there's no bully around. Uh, but the idea of a, a superpower has sort of faded away from people in Asia. And I talk about not only Saudi Arabia and all. So I think the Americans also should know uh, and anybody or any warmonger on both any side should be very careful because if you let things slip by fast, all you, you get is confusion, mayhem, and disaster. And this is what is worrying people in this part of the world. Interesting. Yes, I think I think the U.S., I mean, the discussion is a multipolar world with China, Russia, and U.S. Uh, Afghanistan, Afghanistan, I think, uh, I don't know if it plays into it simply because uh, for so many reasons, Afghanistan, from the U.S. perspective, was misbegotten. <laughs> I mean, it was a place where we were for a long time that uh, the rationale probably wasn't, uh, you know, the, the initial rationale to go in and get Osama bin Laden and remove that network was certainly legitimate. The ensuing 17 years, 
um, you know, it's up for debate. But relationships with the EU and our European partners are a much different tale. You know, these are these are uh, countries that we are philosophically aligned with and have been allies for for generations. So I can see why but, there's uh, a real concern. In this part of the world, many people ask. Uh, is was Germany coerced in backing out of the North Strom, uh, the pipeline thing? I don't know. I'm going to ask you, what's your opinion about it? Because there are some people who think that uh, a German-Russian uh, sort of cooperation would be detrimental to Europe. I, I say no. This is my humble opinion. But how do you perceive it? I, I think in theory, absolutely, it'd be nice to have that kind of economic relationship that strengthens ties. I think, I think the thing that we can't forget is this, it, Russia is led by Vladimir Putin. This is an unreliable, in my opinion, uh, you know, Nord Stream 2 is a great idea, except when, you know, the Putin now has a, a track record of turning off uh, liquid natural gas uh, exports at will. And this is, I've been actually surprised and amazed that Europe would would make itself so vulnerable to a, a head of state that is so capricious and clearly uh, willing to go to, you know, go to air places that others won't. Uh, so I understand what you're saying. Uh, and I think, I don't disagree that those, you know, European, EU and Russian ties being stronger is a good thing. But if one side is willing to use those that those economic ties as leverage it makes you very vulnerable i mean right now the in 2021 the largest exporter of lng to to europe to the eu is the united states that's crazy yes. it mm -hmm. should be russia it should be that's the natural order of things but it's not because russia plays political games and it, you can't really have your livelihood, you know, the warmth, you know, how to, uh, to heat and uh, homes and keep people safe uh, based on that kind of relationship where it can just be manipulated however, you know, one, one side feels is politically advantageous. So and, it's a, it's and a problem. This is, what's, this is what's surprising many people here who look uh, up to um, Mr. Putin as a wily politician, but... He's falling the trap of so many others. I think what disappointed me personally as an analyst was the support for the two breakaway republics and the recognition. Uh, that sort of, uh, you know, took me by surprise and others too. Uh, I don't know whether there's any room left for diplomacy. Uh, the sanctions by the U.S. government, though feeble, a couple of banks, uh, top people in the echelon in the military, I don't know how long will they work, but then the Chinese have also stepped in. So it is going to be another East versus West type of drama that used to happen, if you remember, in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. But your, your point uh, takes us to a problem the U.S. has. And in this situation where it's clear this is an illegal transgression by Russia into, uh, it's, uh, into a country and... and you know, by every legal uh, rule of law, it needs to be addressed and opposed in, in a manner that's possible, any manner that's possible. Uh, that is undermined by the fact that, uh, you know, people in the Middle East and the region saw the U.S. go into Iraq on essentially false pretenses. 
And so we have, a, we have an issue with our track record. In other words, we have not uh, sufficiently upheld, our, uh, upheld the rule of law and done the right thing in certain things. And, and many people argue with me, but I, I, you know, I, I personally think that you know, the invasion of Iraq was, was, was a terrible mistake and uh, probably not legal. But that's not the conversation here. I will say that most people in the region feel that and that it was a mistake and that it was an invasion. So that undermines our credibility um, uh, to a great degree when we come into this situation where I think we're very much in the right in terms of the rule of law and what's, you know, what's, what's worth responding to, it's undercut a little bit by the fact we've made previous mistakes. Well, and the mistakes were many of them. Forget Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, other places. So, you know, even American writers talk about the military industrial complex that Eisenhower spoke about. In fact, in one of the newspapers, I don't know which one, American paper, they referred to this. So I, I, I truly believe that the U.S. has got a lot of diplomacy to do, a lot of impression management, because people by and large may be sympathetic to the Ukrainians who are the pawns, you see, being hit from both sides. But, you know, the USA is also looked at as a power that is provoking these people and coming into closer and closer to the Russian nest. Uh, people go back uh, to Cuba, 1961. They go back to other places. So uh, it's a very confusing, confusing situation. And for ordinary people, they cannot fathom this. They, of course, people look up to newspapers and all, but I don't think so that the support across the globe that the U.S. would have for any action in Ukraine would be a total support. And I don't think so also Biden would have wanted to be a modern-day Chamberlain, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, well, yes. I, I think about that because I was watching a movie called The Edge of War and I've uh, been reading a lot about Chamberlain and Biden want to let go, let go, let go, and then suddenly, but then he was given a plate full of uh, challenges by Putin's incursion, or if not invasion, uh, into Ukrainian territory, which again could be a disputed one because we can sit here and, and talk about and but it could have been a disputed one. But anyway, this was it. Well, yeah, in my opinion, it, you know, the, this president, President Biden, has done a good job of uh, patching up and uh, reestablishing trusting relationships with the EU and NATO, which is really important. I think that may be, that's really been a, a key uh, success of his to date. And you wouldn't have this sort of coordinated response if he had, his administration had been putting in a lot of time over the last eight to ten months in the relationship. So in that regard, if you're looking at it from Putin's point of view, who would really like to see the, the NATO uh, at odds and, and, and not in concert with, uh, with each other, you know, it, it, the Ukraine, uh, Ukraine invasion may backfire. It's really interesting. I We're seeing so. a, oh, please go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead I was just going to, I was just going to uh, add in. It's really interesting. We're seeing sort of like the, the meeting of hard and soft power. I mean, Richard, you mentioned a consistent response. If you go back to Iraq um, during the first invasion um, into Kuwait, 
the famous uh, George H.W. Bush speech where he just stood on the media in front of the media and said, this will not stand this aggression against Kuwait. And then shortly thereafter, the U.S. was in there. They were not in NATO. So it's it's interesting how hard power has has evolved and how U.S. responses have evolved. I mean, perhaps this is happening because Putin saw and and witnessed Biden say, we're not going to physically do anything to stop you from invading Ukraine. Now, sanctions are coming and we're working behind the scenes with NATO. But, you know, there was never like, don't do this or we will be the U.S. will be there. NATO will be there to support Ukraine. Really interesting. that I just it's just this feels weird. You know, it just feels antiquated land wars like this. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's the thing that's so effective about what Putin does. And this is, you know, gray war, basically, you know, doing all sorts of, of uh, things below the level of, of direct conflict that undermines a country or, or a society or parts of society. You know, he's been planting Russians in these eastern provinces of Ukraine for years. Uh, and, you know, their, their self-proclaimed, you know, claim for independence, you know, that's all planned and it's a strategy, you know, and you recognize it. So these are, this is one of the things, as you know, Khaled, the U.S. has struggled with asymmetric warfare across the board, not only in, in arms and material, but in terms of disinformation campaigns and proxy uh, proxy agents within countries. I mean, the U.S. really struggles with it because it's it's not something we do particularly well. Well, I think, yes, uh, David Ignatius I wrote an opinion in the Washington Post uh, titled A Deadly Devious Intelligence War Unfolds in Ukraine. And, you sp- and he did mention the proxy wars. He did mention for years CIA operatives who were, you know, parachuted in the Ukraine and all. Many were caught by the Ukrainian agents of the CIA and handed over to the Soviets. Now I'm talking about the Soviet era. So I agree with you. This is going to be a long drawn war, uh, not military, not conflict. But I think a psychological war, covert operations, and this could continue for a couple of years. I I, I couldn't agree more. I think it could be very uh, a bit of a pyrrhic thing for for Putin. I mean, Ukraine is two thirds the size of Europe. It's a big country, and and significant parts of it really resist and don't accept this kind of uh, incursion. So, it, it, as you say, there's it's really unfortunate and that there's going to be a loss of life and tremendous uh, destruction but i don't see i don't see ukraine just rolling over so it will be uh it will the w- interesting is not the word but we sort of all await with bated breath to see what's going to happen and they're tough fighters too i mean the ukrainians can you know muster up quite a few people i mean forget these high-tech attacks but uh, i see these twitters coming from tweets coming from Ukrainian supporters are asking them to hold on. You know, I think it'll be barricade after barricade, but this is going to cause a lot of bloodshed. I don't know whether Putin is wise enough to understand the end, you know, game of this whole process, but I hope and pray that, you know, some kind of sanity will prevail on all sides. Agreed. Agreed. So, Khalid, you mentioned um, sort of from the the view from Saudi Arabia is sort of wait and see at this point. And I think it's sort of the same in a lot of places around the globe. But what's really at stake for Saudi Arabia here? And, and what's what's going to what do you think is going to happen next? Well, it's it's very difficult to predict Saudi Arabia's if you go back the longstanding policy of non-interference in the affairs of other countries. And especially this is between two countries that Saudi Arabia has got good relations 
One has been an ally for years. The other, we have really built up some good relationship, not only in oil, but in technology and other aspects of the economy. Uh, also, the guys in the middle, the people in Europe. It's not Ukraine that will be affected. You have Germany, you have others. So it's it's a bit of a, you know, a muddle. Uh, we will go through it, and I think we will not interfere uh, in any of these aspects. But the only thing you can do is just wait and see. Yes, I'm sure Saudi Arabia will be very cautious because, uh, as you say, it has such, uh, you know, it has key relationships with everybody involved. Yeah, and I should I just want to add in here that Saudi Arabia has recently increased its trade with Ukraine on food security, on on wheat imports specifically, which is sort of an interesting angle in this. Um, and that was that was recently as of 2020. Um, they started uh, Saudi Arabia started importing Ukrainian wheat, and um, you know, so that's that's an angle of this as well. This is a really uh, very fascinating topic, and I love topics like this, Richard, that just completely um, organically generate. There's no tee up. It just we just we just get going. It's perfect. So. <laughs> Um, that's only only problem is there's no resolution to it. We're all, we're still waiting to see. At the end of the conversation, <laughs> we're still waiting to see. But I mean, Colin, you you introduced some very good points about all the factors that we have to consider. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a stunning turn of events that uh, really roiled the global economy, and and uh, we don't know where it's going to end up. I think that's the fear for everybody. It's moving so fast, you, you never know. I mean, the recognition took a lot of people by surprise. And then some of the attacks that happened, so we have no idea. On the other hand, the counter accusations uh, by the, that the Russians are speaking about, the, you know, the use of forces, attacking Russian uh, military convoys and all. So one does not know whom to believe, whether you're looking at, you know, Russia today, are you looking at any other American channel or a European channel or a Chinese channel? So for an ordinary analyst, uh, it's a tough job. You really have to go in and find out and try to be balanced. But I don't think so in this you can be balanced. Yeah, and that's a, that's a, a challenge for Americans because our, you know, the coverage that we're seeing for the most part is that these are false flag operations. That they, these groups aren't breakaway groups. They're not interested in breakaway groups. This is a, this is a, a rigged situation by Russia, you know. And and also part of that is that you know Putin has has really put himself into a bubble and is not talking with a lot of people and has really been removed. You know, his performance of this recent sort of Security Council uh, meeting was a little disturbing. Just as you know, his perception of Ukrainian history and, you know, that it really has no right to be anything other than part of Russia. Uh, so that's the, that's the perspective most of us are hearing in the U.S. But as you say, you know, in the rest of the world, well, excuse me, in the rest of the world, what we see as false flag operations that are purposely, in, you know, introduced and executed by, by Russia may be seen as legitimate groups seeking independence. I agree with you on that respect. So, because there is no one on the ground, so whatever you are getting in from within Ukraine has many sides. So the story has many sides. So it's difficult from somebody outside, especially in Asia, the Arab world, to figure out what exactly is happening because too many claims, counterclaims, and all. I uh, I wish and pray that you know they these top leaders of all the warring parties, and I call them warring parties, 
will get together and try to come up with some kind of solution that is uh, good for all sides. Let's go to Yella. Yeah, that was a really great discussion on Ukraine. That was really fascinating. Um, but yeah, let's jump right into Yella. And Richard, why don't you go ahead and get us going? Uh, as, as we know, food security is a keen interest of yours, uh, Khaled. This first one, uh, I think hopefully will will fit the bill. Uh, Expo 2020 in Dubai is not just jaw-dropping national pavilions and entertainment. Governments and global leaders convened this week at the Dubai Exhibition Center at the Expo 20 for the Food, Agriculture, and Livelihoods Business Forum. New Zealand, which is recognized globally as one of the most progressive agricultural and excuse me aquacultural nations, its food sector feeds around 40 million global consumers each year, which is eight times its population. New Zealand is taking the lead on the forum that will address the urgent need to transform the world's food and agricultural systems to feed 10 billion people by 2050 within environmental limits. Saudi Arabia is one of 21 countries participating in the forum. Well, the Saudis are aiming for food security. If you remember a few years ago, we went into wheat production and then it sort of fizzled out later on. But I think the, the, the Gulf countries have to understand there's a difference between food security and, and a supply, food supply. So while you may be looking for food security, you have to devise a methodology that can ensure that the food you have also is homegrown. Now the supplies can also be uh, you know, tampered with, they can be cut down, disrupted because of uh, transportation, oil prices, other things. So what the Saudi government is doing now, and I see more and more young people having startups with drip farming, technology, uh, vegetable things. Uh, and I think it's very important. And this is not just saying that. Uh, I think the Saudis have realized also the recycling of water, the proper water management. These are very essential for us to have food security vis-a-vis -vis the food supply. You know, that water management is critical to Saudi Arabia in that regard. You're right. Uh, what, uh, last week, I think it was, one of our yellows was Red Sea Farms working with the University of Arizona to take some of their aquaculture uh, technology and see if they can apply it in the U.S., which is, is extraordinary. That's, that's a great milestone when Saudi Arabia is essentially, is, you know, exporting its aquaculture technology. I, I think that's what you're speaking to, right? Yes, uh, the, a lot of young people have gone into this aquaculture. And then also you sit around, remember we have desalination plants, uh, many, and now people are talking of reverse osmosis out with somebody trying to create rain, not from clouds, but from using other technology. So I think slowly it is dawning upon Saudi Arabia and also the Gulf states, very important to have food security not only just food supply, because supplies can always be disrupted. There's, there's been significant investment by Saudi Arabia and the Emirates as well uh, in East Africa in, in, in large farming operations. Is that, would you consider that part of food security, food supply? I think, yes, it's a mixture of both. So you are secure, but then again, you never know what happens in that country. Uh, God forbid a revolution, overthrow of the government, changes in uh, the law, um, new, a new constitution, that, that is very essential. Right now, there are many Saudis 
who have farms uh, in fruit, fruit farms and other farms around the globe. And there is a supply. But again, as I said, we also to have, have within Saudi Arabia uh, stocks that are made in Saudi Arabia. Um, it was a historic day for Saudi Arabia as the women's national football team played and won its first official international match on Sunday. The Saudi squad traveled to the Maldives to beat the Seychelles. 2-0 in a friendly, which comes just after a month, just a month after the team uh, was named. It will now face the Maldives in its second match today. The team was congratulated by the Brazilian soccer legend Pele, who called it a historic day. It, it, it's this is really a cool story, and and congrats to the the Saudi team. Well, I think yes, the inclusion of women, you see, in all aspects of. Saudi society, to me, is a historical landmark. Uh, and it's a process. Let us not forget those before us also who pushed in to get women in. But I truly believe, and I, call, I always call a spade a spade, that in the last three years, the impact of women, not only in business, technology, uh, but in sports. You know, you have a fencer coming, you... I had people who went for the Olympics uh, 2016 and then they went 2020. And elsewhere, there was a tennis player who won a couple of matches. So these are not cosmetics. My own daughter has a, had to go through a lot of trial and tribulation having a basketball team more than 10 years ago. But now, uh, today, her team is playing in Riyadh uh, and elsewhere. So you are right. The women's sports are coming up, and it's not a fashion. The Saudi women are showing what they can do. They're golfers, they're tennis players, and but they needed the right type. They needed a conducive environment, and that the government has provided for them because there are no people screaming or waving sticks at them. There are no people, you know, <laughs> shouting. Uh, right now they can go uh, travel. Teams are coming up and down. Everything within the framework of propriety. We don't want to be like others, but we want to be ourselves. And this is extremely important also. For those who don't know, um, listeners or viewers, uh, Khalid has had an extraordinary career himself. He also has a number of extraordinary kids. Uh, his daughter, Lena, Lena Almaina, is co-founder of Jetty United. <clears throat> and we did an, a feature on her very early uh, supporter and advocate for women's sports. We're talking, this is, she founded Jetty United in 06, I believe. Uh, she was also a member of the Muslim Shura, but she's been a fighter for women's participation in sports, and she's now, you know, seeing, just as you say, you know, she was facing significant headwinds at the time. Now there's much more support, uh, and that program is great. And I guess your other daughter, Dina, is she, she, she's involved with a very significant NGO, is that correct? Yes, and Ula, which is the first NGO, is about 60 years old, and she was asked to head that. Apart from that, may I add, there's another significant um, trophy winner, was Raha Muharrat from Jizan. She was the first Saudi woman to climb Mount Everest, right to the top, and plant the Saudi flag. So you see that. these are people, but in the past, the media never focused on them, even if they did things individually. But right now, there is media focus, there are sponsors, and there are people who cheer them on. So this is the change that has come over the Saudi society. 
By the way, it's important to note, this is the Saudi Arabian women's national football team, and they brought in Monica Staub, who's a head coach, was, was a coach in Germany for many years, and she's building the squad. This is separate from a women's football league that has been established. It didn't exist before. So you, know, you may not be on the national team, but you can be part of, of I think they had something like 16 teams participate in the recent tournament. Yes. Yes. And the league, so that's a, 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 you know, these are these were girls that would have to play on the streets of Riyadh, and like you say, would be chased off by people who didn't think women should be participating in. And now they have uh, tremendous support, uh, uh, leagues, and and uh, it's it's really a great development. And even families are coming up. Before families would sort of prohibit their daughters from playing games, and I would have had problems even finding a tennis court for. My daughters of my nieces <laughs> but now they're promoting their daughters there are so many tennis courts football fields basketball courts and everywhere and as i said this huge um, you know push and the momentum that is going on i think you know, it augurs well for a nation that would like to have a sound body and a sound mind so sports is now becoming an integral part of our life the other thing which i would like our listeners to know is that the rising number, and I don't know the statistics, I think there's been a 300% increase in gyms and health clubs across Saudi Arabia hmm. in the past few years. Yeah, so this a, is very important to find that those, even those who don't play sports, health is now paramount to the Saudi women. Social transformation. Um, uh, Yala number three. Speaking at the Munich Security Conference, Saudi Foreign Minister Prince Faisal bin Farhan al-Saud said that Lebanon must offer stronger signals that it is serious about reform to secure support from the international community as it struggles with the financial crisis. Quote, Lebanon first needs to be actively saving itself. <clears throat> we need a stronger signal from the Lebanese body politics that they are going to step up, unquote. He said this included stabilizing the economy, and addressing issues of corruption and mismanagement, as well as, quote, regional interference and loss of state sovereignty, unquote. Uh, Khalid, you're, you're of a generation that has fond, fond memories of Lebanon. It, it's got to be difficult to see the state it's in now. It, it, it's true, and it can't happen overnight, what the foreign minister said. And Lebanon is a country that has a high rate of literacy. So this is what is, you know, surprising us as to why these people are not forming a government. The corruption rate is high. And over the last few months, you have even seen in your own newspapers in the States of how money was siphoned off by the, by the rich, uh, the, the impasse in having a government. For, I think for Saudi Arabia, stable Lebanon is a good uh, thing. The other thing is also the non-interference by non-state parties, you see, under the eyes of the government itself or the helplessness of the government into other affairs like Hezbollah and others who are coming and causing a lot of problems outside the Lebanese borders and shying away from even being in the Lebanese political community. This is very disturbing uh, for us. Uh, we want Lebanon to... Uh, proceed uh, uh, to towards an economic recovery. We want them to be stable so that they can be part of a larger Arab League, uh, me, me, uh, larger Arab League uh, community. 
but what you see and what you hear and what is the, 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 the things that are coming out of there, like, for example, the messages from these people. So these are very disturbing. And I think enough is enough. For years, they've been mollycoddled by the Gulf countries. We are no more a gas station nor an ATM machine for Lebanon. I'll be very frank with you. And you get all these verbal hits against Saudi Arabia. When Saudis were trying right from the Taif agreement to get all these parties together. But right now, these brazen statements, you know, even ordinary citizens like us are really upset. So I think the Lebanese have to rein in their troublemakers and they then try to have a, a government that is acceptable to their people, focus on you know, reforms, have good governance, and then come and speak with us. Uh, let me ask you a, a big policy question, and, and maybe you'll have fun with it. Maybe you tell, say, Richard, you know, go away. <laughs> um, coalition sectarian governments, like, like the one in Lebanon, like the one in Iraq, can they work in the long term? It's difficult. I mean, you cannot have one size fits all. I think it's for these people to come up uh, and form a political, uh, uh, how would I say, a body, rather than based on sectarianism or ethnic groups, which never help. I mean, in the United States, you have so many religions, you have, you know, and, and other places, but they get together. There is a coalescence. I don't think so if having seats for this party or this ethnic group and all would be working in this uh, modern world and modern age. But again, it's not for us, it's for the people of Iraq and the people of Lebanon to decide what form of government uh, will be more suitable for them and that will enhance their growth and, you know, stability. I think spot on. It is up for them to decide, but it's essentially what, what's what uh, Prince Faisal is saying here, and what you were saying here, is that you got to get your house in order. We'd like to help. We feel a real bond, but we cannot be, you know, throwing money into a corrupt system that you know won't take advantage of our support, and uh, it's just not in, in. It's not good business. I agree with you. I mean, you just can't pour in money, and now, uh, frankly speaking, money is going to be used within Saudi Arabia and within the Gulf states to go ahead. We have many challenges. Uh, we have a division coming up. Uh, all prices, as you said, you have elevator prices and all down. But I think in the long range for Saudi Arabia, the government and its people, Saudi comes first. Yella number four, to mark World Radio Day, the Saudi Broadcasting Authority recently launched Al Akbariya Radio, the first news radio station in Saudi Arabia. The station will have a network of 85 correspondents and focus 80% of its programming on local news, with the remainder focused on Arab and international news. Station director Mubarak Al-Ati said, Launching the kingdom is in the interest of the Saudi media renaissance to keep pace with the developments the kingdom is undergoing at all levels. Saudi media will continue to advance in service of the kingdom's leadership and people. Very interesting. What is the state of Saudi media today, Khaled? Well, I think a, need, a lot needs to be done. You know, Saudi media, the traditional papers are coming under great uh, pressure. Uh, the print editions are down by a large number. 
the percentage is very low of people buying newspapers or subscribing to papers. So uh, more, more and more people are going towards the social networks that are existence and existence. And I remember in the last couple of years in Arab news, my main competitor was not the other paper in Saudi or in the Gulf. It was the Twitter, or it was, you know, the WhatsApp that would bring in. And I remember the uh, ill-fated MH, I think 470, the Malaysian uh, plane that went down and right. was never seen again. Not the one in the Ukraine. And you could see a Twitter guy saying it's missing, another missing. And before you get something, you knew from Twitter that the plane has disappeared. So I think the Saudi media has to come up. It has to have new blood. It has to have technology. Above all, it has to have trained people, especially radio. For radio, you need somebody who's eloquent. I'm, I'm a radio man. I grew up listening to the BBC for years. And I think a lot of people, when they go to work and on, wouldn't have a phone in their hands and they would love to listen. So I think with this new venture of Akhbariya, 85% uh, local and something that is not dull. So in order that you have people listen to you, good programs, investigative programs, highlighting things, removing other uh, hail and praise type of situations. So, and also information, people like information. So it's very important also that these radio stations and the, these radio journalists give information in an ever-changing world. Um, Yellow number five. Arab News recently reported that the government has not yet decided to integrate its innovative Tawakalna application with the Absher platform. The Absher app was introduced in 2015 by the Ministry of Interior and is the leading e-services platform in Saudi Arabia. It served 23 million users who carried out more than 85 million <laughs> operations in 2021. Tamil was launched in 2020 by the Ministry of Health and is mandatory for all people in the country to enter work sites, shops, and malls. It also has more than 23 million users and last year was selected among the top applications in the e-health category by, World Summit, by the World Summit on the Information and Society Prizes. Now, Khalid, you, you have a podcast of your own, and we should encourage everyone to go on that. A, a recent one, uh, you talked about the Tawakalna app and the COVID crisis. But uh, in general, this is quite remarkable to have these e-government apps so readily available and uh, so widely used. Well, I think they're used for two things. One, it, cut, it cuts costs, number one. Then it offers you easy access. I'll start with Upshare. When Upshare happened, uh, you know, a lot of the people are in, uh, in Saudi Arabia are not uh, tech savvy, especially those who are old and all. But it was in, in both languages, English and Arabic, and it was easy access. So in, in Upshare, I can get a birth certificate, get a passport, get anything I want in Upshare. Get married, get divorced. I mean, it's given an access to... <laughs> All these things, you see, it's very important. Uh, and it also cut down on corruption because there would be the go-between who would come and tell a lie to you that the ministry, voila, as they say, uh, would need uh, some money uh, under the table to process your papers. Now you can do. And also help, by the way, the expatriates. An expatriate now can find out things about himself. 
he can get an exit visa and give exit visas to his wife and all and get visas from abroad. He can apply for a visit visa for his family. So these, you see, took away a lot of the, you know, the pressure that people would go to the passport office, to the immigration offices, and it's really now they're almost empty. And you can get anything. Also, it was a great boon for women. So now a woman, if she wants a passport, she doesn't have to depend if she's 18 and above, depend on her husband or her father or a sibling or something. She gets it on her own and nobody else can go and take. My wife applied for a passport and when I went to get it, they said, no, the applicant should get it. So it has really helped a lot in societal development. That's the upshift. And as again, I say, speed, comfort, stability, and an end to any corrupt practices that may have occurred when this was not there. The tawakkalna also, now when the uh, COVID came, a lot of the people thought that these were draconian measures, you know, not going out, uh, lockdowns and all, but it curtailed the rise of uh, the number of COVID cases. So we have very um, fewer casualties ratio-wise compared with others around the world. Then again, you have to keep abreast with what's going on. So we have, you know, first shot, second shot, the booster shot, everything is there. Slowly they added your license. So I think, yes, I, I truly believe that this is, you know, people come up, oh, this is an attempt to sort of keep tabs on people. I said, if that happens, let them keep tabs anything. I have nothing to hide or declare <laughs> except my genius. This has helped me a lot. And I, and I truly say it very seriously that both this Apshir and Tawakkalna designed by Saudi, uh, how would I say, Saudi programmers has really put us, I think, in the number one category in the world. It is remarkable. I mean, and I guess Tawakkalna is now accepted in 75 countries across the world. Um, and as we've discussed on this program, uh, Bloomberg recently ranked Saudi Arabia number two in the, its COVID resilience ranking. So, you know, of every country in the world, it came in, I think, behind Indonesia. Is that right? Um, or maybe Singapore. Singapore, rather. Cause, uh, but it, it's done a remarkable job. And, and I do recall when Absher was introduced, people were going, oh, this is really intrusive and that sort of thing. But it, it now, is it accurate to say it's just a part of every day for a, a typical Saudi? Yeah, it's a part of every day. I mean, as I said, if I want a passport, if I want anything, the other day I had to give uh, a power of attorney. Uh, you know, Richard, it would take days to go to a courthouse and some guy would write with his feeble handwriting to make <laughs> a power of attorney letter and then stamp upon it. When I wanted uh, a power of attorney, I had a young lady not Republic, come to my office, and then she said, you have to put your stamp. And I said, where? So she brought something up, just put my fingerprint in, and there, lo and behold, the power of attorney was there. My sister died yesterday, and what happened is right from the hospital where they gave her the death certificate to the cemetery that she went, everything was done through computers. So when we took her body there, it was... You know, they knew who was coming. It helps a lot. Instead of sending um, what you call a mu'aggib or somebody who is an agent to go here and there, who would come and tell a lie to you and say, the ministry man wants this or the health ministry wants, man wants, uh, you know, some money. Now, this is totally sort of 
rejected because people will see we are dealing directly. And for, even for those who are business people and don't know how to use the, the computers or the technology, they have people in the office. You know, so it's, 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 I think it's great. I am all for this technology. As far as, you know, we read about whether it's, a, you know, uh, peeping toms or whoever's watching us, I personally don't, don't subscribe to that theory because it really has done a lot to me. It has cut across time, it has cut across money, uh, and it's helped my wife and kids and everything. So they don't depend. No more the woman has to depend on her husband to get a license or to get a passport or to get this certificate or that. Everything is there on. And like you said, it has saved lives in Saudi Arabia with the pandemic. I mean, it's one of those things where Richard and I talk about it and we're jealous of Saudi Arabia that you have this and we don't. And we there's no roadmap for Americans to get this anytime in the near future. So um, it's it is. interesting. You know, when my when my when my father passed, and when my my wife's father passed, even more recently, just the death certificate issue is a problem. You know, getting it to everybody, getting making sure insurers and and whatever vendors that you know they had relationships with, it it's a problem. It's it's not nearly as simple as just as you describe, Khaled. You know what you can do through Abjur. I the, remember the Abjur, yeah, the Abjur and the Tawakkalna is like a one-stop shop. Mm-hmm. Everything is done through this. Should be noted, by the way, the number of deaths from COVID in Saudi Arabia is still under 9,000, which is, you know, this is a country of 30 plus million. It's quite, quite impressive. It's done a really good job. And before the Omicron surge, the daily new cases in Saudi Arabia was averaging under 100 per day, which is yeah. just amazing. And like we said just before, we're very jealous of it. Um, <laughs> But, uh, okay, number six, Richard, and we'll, we'll um, finish off with this. Leading Saudi soccer clubs Al Nasser and Al Halal have each signed long-term strategic partnerships with the investment vehicle Kidia, or excuse me, the investment vehicle of Kidia, the new entertainment district near Riyadh, which plans to build a 40,000-seat clifftop stadium for two Riyadh-based clubs, the two Riyadh-based clubs. Likewise, the PIF-owned Central Jetta company, Excuse me. Central Jeddah Development Company has also signed deals with two other top clubs, Al Ittihad and Al Ahli, Ahli, for the same amount of twenty-six point six million and the same duration until twenty forty-two. Forty thousand seat cliff top stadium at Kidia sounds really <laughs> cool. Um, gentlemen, your thoughts? Well, I'm not much of a soccer fan, but uh, yes, I'm. I support the Had Club because I'm from Jeddah and because it's been one of the major teams in Jeddah and one of the top fours in Saudi Arabia. So yeah. I think with the PIF and all, investing in, in these sports, sporting clubs are a good omen because at one stage these clubs can be companies and, and, and then have their own and even go in and have their own IPOs and more people will come in. So uh, it was, in fact, I saw the news yesterday in an old paper and I was happy that, you know, they've equaled the balance of payment for all these four and also excited people even in Jeddah and in Riyadh. So I think, yes, I, I, we need to have more uh, investments in other sports also, like, you know, soccer for women, basketball, uh, tennis, and it's coming. It's, it's coming. This is a sweet deal. I mean... Uh... 
I, I, honestly, if you know, I don't know. What's, you know, if you're if you're uh, you know if you're Al Shabab, you're kind of ticked off about this. Why can't I get this deal? <laughs> but I know um, I know you know Saudi Arabia is really trying to build its its homegrown soccer environment. Uh, excuse me, football environment, and uh, and that this is part of it. Uh, I, I, you know, these clubs are increasingly spending more money on bringing in uh, talent. And I, you, you said you're not a fan, but I, I, it seems as if the general level of competition throughout the Saudi uh, club ecosystem has has gotten even better and better. Yes, I agree. Before, these four clubs would play against any team and they would win over the years uh, for the King's Cup final. It had to be one of these four. Now, you know, new teams coming from rural areas. This is a good sign that Saudi soccer has gone up, you know. So you yeah. find uh, Ittihad being defeated by a second-rated or third-rated team. But this, right. this shows. And now most teams are also having foreign players from Brazil, from uh, Europe, from Africa. Again, these, they need money. So I think the progress in sports as a business uh, will, be very, will be a great boon for the development of sports. I think, uh, was it Al Ittihad that scrimmaged against uh, Newcastle when they were in Saudi Arabia? Is that right? Yes, 2-1. 2-1, uh, yes. Two, and a fight, too. It didn't scrimmage, it didn't <laughs> scrimmage but... You know, uh, it did well. Yeah, yeah. You say that with pride. I like that, Colin. Even <laughs> though you're not a football fan, you say that with pride. Yes, it did well. You know, the other thing is also that we're talking about football, the technology aspects of football. There are so many football sites, Kura.com, companies that deal with football. And now tech, not oil, is the new hot thing in Saudi Arabia. So there's sports, there's tech. Of course, there's oil at a government level or on the social uh, level and the community level. You find young kids dealing uh, how to deal with artificial intelligence platforms and all sports platforms are coming. The gaming thing is coming up very fast here. Esports, uh, yes, it's, that's fascinating. Esports, Saudi Arabia is dominating, not dominating the area in terms of esports participation. I know PIF just just bought two gaming platforms that will, I'm sure, will will kick it up another notch. Yes, uh, yes, it's transformative what's going on, and this is what uh, what we're seeing over the last few years. Call it is is you know uh, Vision 2030 comes in 2016. There's a uh, you know, the National Transformation Program, uh, you know, was introduced at the same time. It's getting reworked a little bit, NTP 2.0, sort of working out how they're going to go about the economic transformation and diversifying the economy. But now it's transitioning, and that, does, that continues, and it's picked up momentum. But, you know, over the past period, you see that third pillar, that quality of life pillar, really coming into play, you know, and all the way from sports participation and health to parks in the cities and, 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 and entertainment, all these things that are part of the Vision 2030 but have, are, are really stepping in at, in full force now. Well, they are because, you see, the, right now the word is go. And it's important. And I was sitting and talking to a group of young people, and I said, where were you guys before? And they answered, we were never given the opportunity. So this 2030 vision plan is giving them opportunities. And we will remember the society here was 
a, a tribal society, it was also a patriarchal society. So if you are not in the tribal framework and you are in the framework of the cities, so it was patriarchal society, like the Greek societies. So now it's a younger society that questions the wisdom of the elders. We don't want them to go overboard, but at the same time, we would really like that these young people play a big role. I also have a word of caution. I think they should be mentors too. It is not you scoff away at the old fogies. We would like to do something like what was done in, uh, in Singapore where uh, Lee Kuan Yew became a minister mentor. So my advice to young Saudis here or even anywhere in the world is to also sit and gather experience and gain experience and knowledge and wisdom from not all the older people, but from some whom they can connect with and sort of come up so that they will be able to proceed further in their lives. Well, that's an interesting observation you make when you're talking about the young people. We had Rada Al-Harthi on here who who's, has done a lot of research on social entrepreneurship. And we were talking about uh, the creatives, you know, the, so the Red Sea Film Festival and, and so many art shows and that sort of thing. And you and Jeddah, you know, you know, there's been much more of that in Jeddah than anywhere else in Saudi Arabia. But her point was, uh, absolutely, it's exploding now, but they've been there. These creatives have been there. Um, you know, and it's just now that they're having an opportunity to come forward and shine and be supported. Well, society should come in as a whole, right from the family, where women are concerned, right also from investment, uh, bankers or investments, also other people, so a conducive uh, environment of business. Uh, the bureaucratic hurdles should be erased or wiped out. Red tape should be to a minimum. So you should have uh, an atmosphere where a young man who has a dream, who has a little bit of money, should have the right platform to take off. Exciting times, Khaled. Yes, I agree with you, exciting times, and I do hope that things will be improving much quicker. I totally agree with you. And I refer back to what I said earlier, where the young guys were, was, were asked, where were you? They said we were there, but now we are here. And he just pointed up, and I think that's great. The brilliant Khaled Al-Maina, Saudi journalist, commentator, businessman, um, and podcaster now. Khaled joins us. Uh, Khaled, <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, this was a really, really interesting conversation. We really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you. Anytime. I, I truly am a 966 fan, and I do hope that more and more people will see it. Oh, thank you, Khaled. We will hold that, hold you to that. We definitely would like you to return and, and help us out with this. It's been, this has been a great one, and uh, thank you so much.